If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 13. After a number of weeks, we finally finished chapter 12 and are now in uh, chapter 13. Mark chapter 13 is known as the Olivet Discourse from Jesus and the disciples' position on the Mount of Olives. It's also known as the Little Apocalypse kind of smaller than the book of Revelation. It's dealing with eschatology, things, matters, dealing with the last things, the end times, as we see in particular in the Old Testament books like Daniel and the New Testament book of Revelation. This um, Olivet Discourse, this little apocalypse, is also found in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, but of course we're looking at it through Mark's vantage point. What we see, I believe we'll see in Mark 13, is a fulfillment of the Bible. There are end times that are spoken of. And the Bible is, of course, pointing to the end of history. And indeed, speaking of history, there has been a history of interpretation of this and similar passages. There's a diversity of opinion out there. But as I think we will see today and next week there in the midst of a diversity of understanding and interpretation and opinion, we will see absolute clarity on what God wants us to know. As you know, we march slowly through books of the Bible because we believe that that's the best way to understand uh, these, uh, the Bible because When we pick and choose where we go, we're putting the microphone in our hands. And yet when we preach, as it were, and listen and study verse after verse, chapter after chapter, book after book, what it is is the effect of of God having the microphone in His hands. He's telling us what He wants us to know. And if I wasn't committed to consecutive expository preaching, like I said earlier, I might be tempted to jump over this chapter and get right into chapter 14. But we see this chapter is a bridge between the conflict in the temple and the passion or the suffering narrative that will really get going in chapter 14. Mark here presents this teaching of Jesus as a unified whole, all 37 verses, one teaching, one conversation that Jesus has, as it were, with his disciples. And indeed, in my study, it was hard. I was finding it close to impossible to determine how to break this text up into preaching portions. Therefore, we're going to spend this week and next week on the entire chapter. Now, if you had to break up the text, it might go something like this. Verses 1 through 4, the coming destruction of the temple. Verses 5 through 25, coming persecutions. And uh, verses 26 through 37, the coming of the Son of Man. Now this week, our emphasis will be on the forest. Next week, we may get into some of the trees. Today, it will be a high-altitude flight, an overview. And next week, probably a lower-level flight where we may indeed hover over certain areas. Now, in just a moment, I'm going to read this entire chapter out loud and all of us together are going to hear it read. Paul writes in Romans, so faith comes from hearing and hearing 
through the word of Christ. And indeed, in biblical history, we see how true that is. You remember the sermon on the day of Pentecost? Basically, Peter's just bringing together Old Testament text. And he's talking about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And what happens? People were cut to the heart. They came to faith through the word. And in church history, whether it's Augustine coming to faith, hearing the word, whether it's Charles Spurgeon in London hearing the word, people come to faith through the simple hearing of the word. As we go to God's word, let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, this is not just a book among books. This is your written revelation to your people. It is complete. You have made yourself known, Father, in creation through your written word and supremely through Jesus Christ, your word in the flesh, to which this book testifies. And so, Father, would you indeed open our eyes to see Christ, open our ears to hear him, open our minds to know and understand, and open our hearts to embrace him as he is freely offered in the gospel. Father, be pleased through your word and by your spirit to feed your gathered people now. Amen. And as I read and as you listen, take note of the indicatives, statements that we are to believe and the imperatives, commands that we are to obey. And this is not a trivial grammatical lesson. He who can distinguish between the indicative and the imperatives, not only is he or she a great theologian, but a growing Christian. So listen now as I read all of Mark 13. Remember, it's one unified whole. In the, in the view of Mark. And as he, that would be Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, 
Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see, see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. That's a great line to end with, isn't it? Right before a sermon, stay awake. <laughs> Two key verses, I believe, demonstrate the importance of this address of Jesus. Verse 31, heaven and earth will pass away but my words will not pass away. Here Jesus is echoing Isaiah 48, which you hear often here. 
The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Peter goes on to say this, For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Here, Jesus' words, it's being equated with the word of the Lord. Jesus is revealing himself to be the Messiah, the promised one who speaks with the authority that he has. He is God in the flesh. And then look from verse 31, jump back to verse 23, the last part of verse 23. I have told you all things beforehand. As we begin our look at this challenging um, chapter, we have confidence. Why? Because of the enduring truth of God's word and because it's coming to us ahead of time. I mean, how many of us, when faced with the exam, would love to have a copy of the exam, as it were, ahead of time? Kids, I mean, that would be a dream come true, wouldn't it? Here we have these words of Jesus, these enduring, eternal words. We've got them now, ahead of time here. Now, I want us to move to an experience that we've all had, whether in the front seat or the back seat. It's the car trip. The word from the back seat, the question, when are we going to get there? Are we there yet? And you know, drivers out there that, That's not just asked once, is it? It's asked over and over again. And oftentimes the driver or the person riding shotgun will say, in an hour, in three hours. But you know what? You never know exactly what's going to happen. So one of the best answers and a wise answer to give is, we'll get there when we get there. Have you all had that experience in the car? Well, let me uh, bring it to something a little more serious than just a car trip. Have you all had this question? When is life going to turn out the way the Bible says it's going to turn out? When is the life that I see going to become the life that that God's word promises? Jesus is going to address that. Our text could be considered a time of question and answer. Kind of front seat, back seat. In response to that shocking statement of Jesus about the temple. The temple in Jerusalem. The disciples ask two questions. When and what regarding the destruction of the temple? And Jesus answers four questions. Not only about the destruction of the temple, but also about the coming of the Son of Man in judgment. The end of history. In Matthew's account... This is made clear in Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And that makes sense because the destruction of the temple would be the end of the world as far as the disciples were concerned. Back in 1987, as I was getting ready to graduate from college the next year, there was this song that just 
echoed throughout the dormitories on campus, and it was this, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. And for the disciples, as we will see in a moment, it really could be considered the end of the world as they know it with the destruction of the temple. Now, as we go forward in our text, we need to keep two horizons in view, the near horizon and the far horizon. Biblical prophecy has as its one of its uh, trademarks kind of two fulfillments, one near and one far, and it'll be important for us to keep that in mind as we go forward. Some of you may have driven west on Interstate 70, headed across Kansas into Colorado, and you see the Rocky Mountains before you. Anybody done that? I bet some of you have flown over it. Um, You see it ahead, and you get closer and closer, and what do you find? That one mountain range that you see is actually several mountain ranges, and the closer you get, the more you see the depth, and I believe we will see depth. Indeed, all of Scripture can be seen in one way with two horizons. Think with me as as one example, Moses and the exodus from Egypt. A real event that happened in real space-time history. God's people were freed from slavery in Egypt. But also think about the greater Moses that was promised, the greater Moses that came, Jesus, and the exodus from sin freeing people from slavery to sin. It's a historical event, the Exodus, but it's also a picture. It's a type of what was to come. It's a shadow, and the substance was coming. And that's just one example of many. And as we go, I want us to think about a couple of aids to interpretation, two things that I believe will aid us in our understanding. First, I believe there's a framework running through a text, a trellis, as it were, on which the rest of the text grows, like a a trellis and a vine. Look with me at verses 4, 29, and 30. These things, these things, these things. Primarily the reference on these things are the destruction of the temple. But then look at verse 32. That day or that hour. Specifically referring to the coming of the Son of Man. But then in verses 17 and 19 and 24, you see those days, those days, those days. Primarily everything in between. The first two, more emphasis on the temple. The last one, more on the return. But think with me. These things, these things, these things, the destruction of the temple, that day or that hour, the coming of the Son of Man, and those days, those days, those days, everything in between, the destruction of the temple and the coming or the return of the Son of Man. Not only is there a framework, but I believe a couple of pictures to help us. One is pretty explicit. The fig tree in verses 28 through 31. It's an illustration. It's a lesson Jesus himself is giving about. And it's probably used differently than the fig tree before representing Israel. But this is just um, like uh, heart. You're going to know when summer is coming because of the signs. You're going to be able to look at the um, 
the fig tree and what's happening to it, and you'll know that summer is here. But also, there is another picture, another metaphor. Look with me at verse 8. Verse 8. At the end, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, some of you have experienced that, I'm sure. All of us have been the cause of that, right, in some way? Sinclair Ferguson writes this in his commentary. Labor pains certainly indicate that a birth is about to take place. But who knows how long a woman's labor may be? The birth pains indicate that childbirth has begun. They do not serve as a prophecy of the exact moment of delivery. Well, what is present in our text is past, present, and future. The destruction of the temple, the end of history, and everything in between. We're going to look back, look ahead, and look around. In other words, we're going to be looking back at the past. We're going to be looking ahead to the future, and we're going to be looking around in the present. And in doing so, I believe that in this text, in this sermon, Jesus is giving us here all that we need to face the future, no matter what comes, through faith in Him. Looking back to the destruction of the temple, primarily verses 1 through 23. Remember, there are three audiences here. There's Jesus' disciples. There's Mark's original audience, most likely Roman Gentile or Gentile Christians in and around Rome, anywhere from 50 to 60 AD, most likely. The temple. We've already spent a whole chapter of Jesus in and around and in and out of the temple and the conflict. But as we've said before, the temple is the center of Jewish life and culture. Religiously, of course, but also politically, even during the time of the Roman occupation. And it is massive, absolutely massive, covering one-sixth of all Jerusalem. And it was fun to study and research and find out that, that this temple really was a wonder of the world. Check these dimensions out. The stones of the temple, 37 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet deep. No matter how you measure it, massive stones. An architectural wonder of the world. And Jesus says, it's all coming down. There's not a stone that's going to be left unturned. Some of you know where you were on September 11th, 2001. And it was one thing, as I was, to be watching on TV the burning of one of the Twin Towers. And it was another thing to watch on TV the impact of the second plane into the other tower. But when all of us were gathered around in one of the... Um, lobbies of the seminary with a TV that had been brought down from upstairs, we saw the towers collapse. And no one in that room could say a thing. There was no comment. Believe it or not, this is not exactly what's going on here. It's bigger than that. Imagine 
in one, on one day, the United States Capitol, the White House, and the Supreme Court are all destroyed. That gives a little bit of an idea of what is happening to say that the temple will be destroyed. It's almost saying the nation will be destroyed. It is, according to the understanding of the disciples, it would be the end of the world as they knew it. At the beginning of chapter 11, Jesus enters the temple and he judges the temple. And here he is leaving the temple and he pronounces, as it were, another judgment. Because Jesus can see and distinguish the outward appearance of the temple versus the inward reality of the temple. And sadly, the word and the spirit of God are absent. The destruction of the temple. There's a reference to the abomination of desolation. It comes from Daniel chapter 27 and or excuse, Daniel chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 11. It refers to this desecration of the temple. And we already see that once in biblical history in the past in 168 BC when Assyrian Antiochus Epiphanes came in and destroyed the temple. He erected an altar to the pagan god Zeus. But here in the immediate future, the, the present as it were, between 66 and 70 AD, Israel was revolting against Roman rule and Rome put down the rebellion. In April of 70 AD, General Titus, a son of an emperor, came in and destroyed Jerusalem, sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Historians say easily one million people died. But there was an exodus, a flight into the mountains and in the hills during that time as well. And interestingly, the story is told that the, some of the soldiers, Roman soldiers, got to the temple and they started it on fire and it burned. And all of the gold overlay, all of the gold fixtures in the heat of the fire melted turned to liquid and they fell between the cracks as it were of the temple. And so Titus, it's understood, wanted to get the gold. And so how do you get the gold? But you remove stone after stone after stone to get the gold. It's the end of the world as they knew it. The destruction of the temple. And for us, for us as the audience, we look back at this. For the disciples, they were looking slightly forward. But for us, we don't just look back at the destruction of the temple, we also look ahead to the coming of the Son of Man, primarily in verses 24 through 37. You'll notice in verse 26, it will be the return of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Son of Man with great power and glory. The return of Jesus here and understood elsewhere in Scripture will be personal triumphant, redemptive, just, and unexpected. And it's that unexpected nature that Jesus goes on to address. When, look at verse 32, no one knows, not even the Son. In verse 33, once again, for you do not know. Here, once again, is Jesus 
speaking of him operating out of his human nature. It's not been revealed yet to him. Only the Father knows. Jesus is trusting and submitting as the Son to his Father. And so there's an uncertainty keeping believers in constant expectation, but there, uh, excuse me, there's an uncertainty keeping believers in constant expectation, but there is a certainty. It will happen. It's guaranteed to preserve them from despondency. Our text before us is not a timetable, but rather it's a blueprint for faithful discipleship. The discipleship that Jesus institutes when he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In view of Mark being the shortest catechism, who is Jesus? Here he is saying he is the true Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. And what? He is bringing judgment on the temple. What is he doing? He is judging Israel. He is going to send the gospel out and he is going to gather his elect at his return. And then how should someone respond? How should someone respond? We're going to take a look at that now. Notice here, we've been talking about the past and the future. Two bookends. Years ago when I was studying Titus chapter 2, in one of the commentaries, John Stott wrote something that applied specifically to the incarnation and the return, the first advent and the second advent of Jesus, but I believe it also applies equally to the destruction of the temple and the return of the Son of Man. Stott says this, The best way to live now in this present age is to learn to do spiritually what is impossible physically. Namely, to look in opposite directions at the same time. In other words, he's saying in order to live the Christian life now, in the present, we must simultaneously look back on the incarnation, on, for us, the destruction of the temple, and to look forward to his return. Look forward to the coming of the Son of Man. We live today in light of both yesterday and tomorrow. And here we look back on the destruction of the temple and we look ahead to the return of Jesus. So let's spend a few moments now looking around and living in the present. What are we to be doing between the times? What are we, be, what are we to be doing between the already of the temple's destruction and the not yet of the coming of the Son of Man? First of all, do not be deceived. Because we're prone to be deceived. Verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. Verse 21, do not believe it. False gods, false messiahs, fallen people, and a fallen world, all recipes for deception. Do not be deceived, Jesus is saying. But he's also saying, do not despair. Because not only are we prone to be deceived, we are prone to despair. Look at verse 7. Do not be alarmed. Look at verse 13, how it begins. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Do not despair. Bear witness and proclaim the gospel. You know, we need to be told to do this in verse 9 for my sake, to bear witness before them 
This is what many have said is Mark's great commission. Verse 10, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. What are we to be doing? Not be deceived, not despairing, but in the meantime, bearing witness and proclaiming the gospel. To be sure, initially addressed to the apostles, but through them to God's people here and now. And finally, to be on your guard and stay awake. Look at these verses. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, the first part, be on your guard. Look at verse 33, both together, be on your guard, keep awake. Verse 35, stay awake. Verse 37, stay awake. What are we to be doing? But remember, there's also a promise. At the end of verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Thus far in Mark, Jesus is saying, if you take me seriously, if you trust in me, you will make it to the end. Promises made and promises kept. Well, why is Mark chapter 13 here? It's not to satisfy our curiosity. It is not to provide us with a calendar. And most certainly, it is not here to scare us. Jesus is not trying to scare you. He is trying to prepare you. Woven throughout this text is this. We need patience, we need endurance, and we need trust. And where do we find that? Where do we find patience endurance, and trust. Hope you know the answer to this by now. Kids, the answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. As important as it is to know what we are waiting for, the new heavens and the new earth, judgment, and my friends, Christians should not be afraid of judgment. At all. It's fallen upon Christ, and if you're wanting all the wrongs to be made right, if you've been burned, if you've been treated unjustly, Judgment Day will be a glorious day for those who are hidden in Christ. As important as it is to know what we are waiting for, it's far more important to know are you ready for this? Who it is that we are waiting for, and who is Jesus? Thus far in Mark, and as we will see continuing in Mark, we see Jesus, what? Not being deceived, right? He's in the garden, excuse me, he's in the wilderness tempted by Satan, and he is not being deceived. Why? It is said. It is said. It is written. He's clinging to God's word. And Jesus is not despairing. Jesus, the rabbi who has slow disciples. How many of you would have already given up on you? Not Jesus. He is not despairing. And what is Jesus doing so far? Bearing witness and proclaiming the gospel. And as we will see in a few weeks, 
Jesus is being on guard and he is staying awake. My friends, this is a setup, I believe, to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is alert and awake. And what is he doing? He's praying. And what are those around him doing? Sleeping. My friends, our hope is not in our strength and our ability to endure to the end. Our hope and our strength is found in the one who has endured to the end and come through and will return. My friends, this passage is not here to scare us. It's here to prepare us to prepare us to be faithful witnesses here and now and to usher us into that great day that awaits. Find your hope and trust and confidence in the preacher of this text, Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you that we are pointed forward here to that great day ahead when the Son of Man, the one promised, who came in weakness, who came in frailty, will return in power and strength and glory. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to prepare us individually as families and as a church for that day. Help us to live in light of what has taken place and what is promised to come. Father, help us to walk with one another, helping, each, helping the other not be deceived, not despair. Helping one another proclaim the gospel and witness to the truth. And to help one another stay awake and be on our guard. Oh Lord, indeed when you return, will you find faith on earth? Would you be pleased to find faith among your people here? For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.